like to invite our children to head back to Transformation Station. And uh, just a, a heads up for you commuter kids, parents, uh, we, we have commuter kids running every Sunday now, except for the fifth Sunday of, of the month. So that only happens about four times a year. One of those happens to be next Sunday. So that's just a heads up. Uh, your, uh, your first to fifth grader can uh, hang with us for the sermon as well uh, next week. But uh, that is... Uh, that is something just for you to know about worship next week. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, please open up to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning, and the first 38 verses. And if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you there, that'll be page 857. I want to help us get into the text by reading the first 21 verses So please follow along as I read them for us. Luke writes, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. 
Father, we ask that you would help us hear this text in a fresh way. And as we encounter the the sending of your son, God the son becoming man, what we call the incarnation, God, would you teach us in a new way the radical implications of the coming of Christ for our lives to the end that we might bring you praise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I can't read these words without thinking back to Christmas on my mom's side of the family. Perhaps some of you can identify with this. Uh, We would gather every Christmas at at my my grandmother and my grandfather's house. And and for us, that meant that my grandmother had planned out this, you know, elaborate meal, turkey, ham, dressing, all the vegetables you can imagine, green beans, mashed potatoes, githendu. I I feel you back there. He's getting hype about this meal. We got corn. We got squash. That was one of my favorites, okay? Don't judge me for that, for you squash haters out there. Um, sweet potatoes, you know, the whole, the whole nine yards, you know what I'm saying, the works. And, and so after kind of stuffing ourselves on this Christmas meal, the children always would, you know, move into the living room because what was there? The, the Christmas tree and all of the gifts, right? But it was a tradition, and it was certainly one that, that still resonates with, with me today, that before we would open the first gift, we just knew this is how we operated at my mom, mom and granddad's house, as I called them, that before we opened that first present, we would open this book, God's Word, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And my grandfather, who was a pastor for about 50 years, would most often read this passage. And, and why that's so significant, even you could say so weighty, is because it communicated something to me, even at an early age, that before we open all these gifts from one another, we should remember the greatest gift that God has given to us. I mean, what makes Christmas Christmas is the gift of Jesus Christ to the world. And so there is no doubt, this is one of the most familiar passages of the, old, of, the, of the New Testament, or you could say the Bible. And on the one hand, that's a beautiful thing because we're familiar with it. We know about Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger. We know about the angels and the shepherds. We even know about, as we'll read about Simeon and, and Anna. But there is a danger in our familiarity, right? Because sometimes familiarity, what? It, it breeds contempt. In other words, we, we become so familiar with, with these passages and the truths of, of God's word that we begin to kind of approach it in a very casual manner that can even border on a line of practically, in a very practical way, almost saying, yeah, I know that stuff, and disregarding its implications for our lives. So the challenge for us today is not simply to be familiar with this story, but to allow this story to renovate, or maybe better to say, to reconstruct the very stories of our lives. The challenge is not to assume that we know this inside and out, but to ask God to take us into the depths of what is revealed here in the incarnation of the Son of God. So as we 
dive into Luke chapter 2 this morning, we're going to find that the birth of Christ teaches us that the Son of God invaded human history so that he might invade our lives with his peace. Luke, starting in chapter 1 and in verse 5, all the way through uh, chapter 2, again, provides this, what amounts to a theological overview. It, it gives us the, the essence of what is going to follow in the gospel of Luke. And what we're going to see as we work through these 38 verses are really three encouragements that I pray will help us really grasp the reality of Christmas. The first one is this, that we should consider the humility of Christ in his incarnation. These first seven verses that we read together focus on the tangible realities of Jesus' birth. They focus on, if you will, the, the stuff of earth. There was a, a, an emperor, Caesar Augustus. He decreed that a census should go forth, and it operated under the jurisdiction of Quirinius. And Joseph and Mary moved from where they were living to, to be registered in, in Bethlehem where Joseph was a descendant from the lineage of David. And this is where this baby boy would be born there in Bethlehem. So we have the stuff of earth kind of contained in the first seven verses. Then we move into to verses 8 through 20. We have the reception of, of earth and heaven as they respond to the coming of this baby boy. And as we reflect on Luke's account, we first are just struck with how this passage smacks of humility. We see it time and time again. I mean, the eternal Son of God, born in a place that was reserved for animals? I mean, I mean are, are you kidding me? wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. It's an astounding kind of uh, reality to consider. And, and, and then, in addition to that, you have the, this, this glorious announcement that was, was not made to those who sat in the king's palace, but it was made to lowly shepherds. There were common, ordinary people who God chose to make known this awesome news of great joy. And that tells us something about God, by the way. It tells us that God is into choosing the weak things of the world, the very common things, the common people. These shepherds were representative of, 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 of all common people in the world for whom this salvation is given in Christ. And so we see the humility of Christ coming in so many ways, but but no, none more so than we think about the reality of the incarnation, right? I mean, what are, what are we talking about when we, we use this theological word, incarnation? We're talking about the eternal Son of God who ex has existed for all eternity coming in the, in the form of a baby, taking on our human nature, God becoming man. That's the incarnation. And when you pause to think about it, the one who has eternally existed, stepping into time and space, being bound by the restrictions of the tick of the clock. Amazing. 
the one who is perfectly holy, walking our dusty streets with people filled with sin. The incarnation. The one who reigns above all, in the words of John Bunyan, would stoop down past the fallen angels to redeem us. We can't just read Luke 2 and say, oh yeah, I know that. The Son of God became man. And a theologian from the 17th century, John Owen, says this to kind of help us grasp the magnitude of the incarnation when he says that we should consider the infinite distance between God's essence and that of his creatures. I mean, can you begin to do that this morning? The infinite distance between God as creator and we as his creatures? It simply can't be done. Octavius Winslow, who I wrote my dissertation on, I have such an affinity for, of course, he says that in reflecting on the incarnation, that, that there is always some relative proportion when we are talking about two finite things. So think about this. A grain of sand has some proportion to Mount Everest. See that? A drop of water bears some proportion to the Atlantic Ocean. My 97 black Honda Accord with no AC bears some proportion to the $2.6 million 16-cylindered Bugatti Veyron Supersport. Some proportion. But when we're talking about the finite and the infinite, there is no proportion born there. Hopefully that begins to, to even scratch the surface of gaining an appreciation for the humility of Christ, who was eternally God, forever exalted, becoming like us, coming in the flesh. By the way, here's just a little theology for you. Jesus did not cease to be God when he became man. Got it? One scholar put it this way. He became what he was not, a man. But he did not cease to be what he always was, God. To put it another way, in the kind of classic Christological debates of, of the third and fourth century, there was a time when Jesus, the baby, was not. There was never a time when the son was not. In, in contradistinction to the Arians of, of their day or the Jehovah Witnesses or the Mormons of today, Jesus has always been God. And he came to earth so humbly to walk among us. Paul explains it this way in Philippians 2 to help us kind of get a handle on this. He starts in verse 6 and he says, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, though he was God, became man, and he did not 
consider equality of God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he did not, um, you know, uh, he, he, he laid aside his, his rights as God, but he never ceased to be God. He didn't make full use of his rights is a good way to understand this, Jesus com- coming in the incarnation. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what could be more lowly or unassuming than this? Jesus came to serve. He came to, to, not, to not to be served again, but, but to serve. This one who is on a forever throne as we looked at last week. Stoop down to extend love and grace to us. And so let me just say that it's in his humility that we find every reason to exercise humility ourselves. I mean, what Paul has just said in Philippians 2, 6, and 6 through 8 is built on what he just told us in 30 through 5. What does he say there? He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, da 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 da. You got that? So our humility, our pursuit of counting others more significant than ourselves, which, by the way, you know is very, very difficult, right? I mean, who wants to lay aside their rights to, you know, get up off the couch when you're just in chill mode late at night to help, you know, clean up and pick up the kids' toys and to actually wash the dishes? We had some people over, and Wes was, like, cleaning. He was wanting to clean all our dishes. Like, dude, stop that, man. Like, I don't, I don't do that around here very often, you know? And, uh, and so it's the bad thing about living in biblical community is, like, Marsha, you know, she was taking notes over there. It was like, hey, thank you, Wes, very much. Here's $5 on your way out. Um, so, so, you know, we just, even amongst the people we love the most, we don't always want to put them before ourselves. And so as, as you think about your own life, do you raise up your own accomplishments, your own ability, your own knowledge, even if not externally, just on the inside? I mean, you're thinking, man, I'm right here whether it's a, a philosophical point of view or whether it's a practical task, man, I know this, I know how to do this better than you know how to do it, and we just kind of function out of pride so often. Or would people more readily kind of identify you as one who is, who is understated, who is more unassuming, who doesn't think they always have it all together, who is a little more sober-minded, who puts others before themselves, who, like Christ, doesn't always have to make use of their rights, but who consistently says, you know what, I'll take the back seat here so that you might go before me. The incarnation teaches us of the humility of Christ, and we constantly need a a dose of this Christ-centered humiliation. But finally, as we think about the incarnation, what is so astounding about God becoming man is that it teaches us something about how God relates to us. Here's what I mean by that. In the incarnation, we see perhaps more clearly than at any other point that God 
takes the initiative in pursuing us. All right, just think about this. There is a common view that we can obtain salvation by our own pursuit of God, which really tells us of, of two false beliefs. Number one, that we could actually earn our way to God. As if that were possible, remember this infinite distance between he who is perfectly holy and we who are filled with sin and finite. So while we would want to maybe earn our way and work our way to God's favor and approval, the testimony of Scripture says it just can't be done. So that's, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, you have the reality that we have not made the first move toward God, but he has made the first move toward us. He takes the initiative. Salvation belongs to God. Salvation does not belong to us. So when you were not looking for God in any way, but held up your arms in rebellion against God, God came looking for you. It's the gospel of grace. And it should humble us to the dust and fill us with praise that God would take the initiative, that he would set his mysterious and electing love on us that we might have salvation. This is good news. So first, consider the humility of Christ in his incarnation. Number two, see the glory of Christ in his incarnation. Look back at verses eight and nine. It says here that an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. So we ask ourselves, why would this majestic presence of God, the bright and radiant glory of God, shine around the shepherds and attend the coming of Christ? It's because Jesus is full of the glory of God. That's why. So when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for he, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, we begin to learn a little bit more about the incarnation. That this baby boy, this infant held in his mother's arms was the eternal son of God and contained the glory of God in his person. It's shown in the face of Christ. John 1 verse uh, let me hit Hebrews 3, 1, 3 first. He is the radiance of the glory of God. You can memorize that. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So Jesus is full of glory. He reveals the glory of God to us. And so how are we to respond then as we see this glory? Well, we respond hopefully like the angels and the shepherds and like Simeon and Anna do. We respond in praise. The glory of Christ should move us to praise. And I know for some of you that have been tracking with us for the last month, month and a half, you're thinking, okay, here we go again. I heard this sermon a few weeks ago. I heard this sermon like three weeks ago. I heard this sermon last week. And here's, here's kind of our philosophy here. It's basically the same sermon turned 52 different ways every single week. You, you, you get that? So it's like it's the gospel every week. The gospel demands our response, a response of worship and praise to God. And why is that? Well, it's because he's God, we're not. 
He's holy. We're not. He runs the show. We don't. He is worthy of our praise. We are not. And so when we see the glory of Christ, it should move us to praise. And as we've seen through Luke 1 and 2, this praise is built on promises. Okay, I mean, think about this, the sovereignty and the providence of God. God is a God of details. So he orchestrates through the the decree of, of, of Caesar Augustus that Mary and Joseph would then travel down to uh, what amounted to, to kind of Joseph's hometown, his lineage, where, where he had to register. And this act fulfilled prophecy about the coming Messiah. Do you see that? God is a God of details. He always fulfills his promises. And as we read through the New Testament, it is constantly highlighting how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types of the Old Testament, all of the, the, the sacrificial system, all the, the prophets, priests, kings, judges. They were all pointing to something more true and better, a coming Messiah in whom all the, the shadows would find their substance. And so God was at work fulfilling his promises in the per, per, person of Jesus Christ. You'll see that if you attend the equipping class, Genesis Foundations of the Gospel, next Sunday and the next seven weeks. There's a little plug for Jody there. That's Pastor John to the rest of you. All right. So the glory of Christ is, is, is built on the promises of God, and, and the glory of Christ should move us to proclamation. Once again, from a few weeks ago, this is worship-driven mission here. All right? When we see the glory of Christ, when we see how worthy he is, that should move us to want to share, to announce this good news to others. Look back in verse 10. It says that the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this, this is the announcement of news, good news. News is to be announced, okay? News is not to be twisted, It's not to be tampered with. It's not to be, you know, modified based on our preferences or our intended outcomes, but it's just simply to be announced. And so hopefully this is what we do with the gospel. We just announce it to people. We just let them know that God loves us and he has sent his love to make it known in the person of Christ. That though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God sent Jesus to live a perfect life, die in our place, be raised again so that all through faith in him could have eternal life and abundant life now. And so we announce this news and verse 11 really helps spell out the gospel. Look at what it says. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord. So, little lesson here. The only time in the New Testament you have the words, Savior, Christ, Lord, Luke 2.11. Jesus is Savior, Christ, Lord. Jesus was a very common name. The the, the name we see in the Old Testament, Joshua. It was a common name that was embodied in an uncommon, one-of-a-kind way in the person of Jesus. It means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. Jesus brought the salvation of God to us. 
Thus he is the savior, the one who delivers us or rescues us out of our plight of sin and separation from God. Not only that, he is Christ. He's the Messiah. Again, we think Davidic king here, the promised Messiah, the one who sits on a forever throne to reign forever and should reign in our hearts. And then finally, he is the Lord. The title given for God himself. He is the one under whose authority we should sit and live and operate all the days of our lives. That's the gospel. And this gospel, by the way, is for all people. Let's go ahead and read in verses 22 through 38, where Jesus is presented in the temple to Simeon and Anna. This is what Luke writes. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Let's stop there. So, so what Simeon says when he sees the, the, this baby boy, he says, hey, God, you fulfilled your promise like you always do, just according to your word. You did it again. Now I have seen this coming Messiah, the salvation that you have sent for us. And once again, this is not just a salvation for a select few. It is a salvation that has been prepared for all people. This is good news. This is why we pray for Greece this morning. You know what I'm saying? It's why we're going through Operation World from A to Z, praying for every country on the planet. It's why we adopt missionaries and pray for them in our small groups and seek to care for them and to love them because we want them to be encouraged in their mission to take this light of revelation to the world. It's what we're about because we understand the gospel is for all people. And this is what I love about the gospel. There's not a person on the globe that does not need to hear of God's salvation and there's not a person on the globe that we should not take this message to. It tells us something about God's love, right? I mean, God's love is for all. But even as we keep reading here in verses 33 through 35, we find out that though God's invitation is universal, it is not universally accepted. Another way to put it maybe is that though the gospel is worthy of all acceptation, it is not deemed worthy of acceptance by all. 
And this is what Simeon is going to point out in verses 33 through 35. Here, Here we go. And his father and his mother marveled at this, what was just said about him by Simeon. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so what Simeon says here is that not everyone will embrace the salvation that God extends. Which leads us to our third encouragement this morning, not just to consider the humility of Christ or to see the glory of Christ, but to embrace the peace of Christ that he brings in his incarnation. See, once again, this peace is available to all, but not all receive the peace that God extends. We've seen this theme of peace throughout. In verse 14, a key verse, uh, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's implicit in the idea of salvation. It's implicit in what, what Simeon is waiting for, the consolation of Israel, what Anna will speak of, the redemption of Jerusalem. God comes to, sends Jesus to bring his peace that we might have this harmonious relationship with God once again where it was once broken. But, but, but Simeon clearly tells us that not all will receive it. And he says it with such piercing words. He says, this child is appointed. And another way to say, this is his mission. This is why he was sent. He was appointed to be the rise and the fall of many. So we're going to see this in Luke. We see it all throughout the New Testament, from the Gospels to the to the to the book of Acts, to the epistles, that Jesus often has a great reception. But on the other hand, he often has great opposition. It says that, that this rising and this falling comes from a sign that is opposed, pointing us to, and even ratcheted up a bit when he tells Mary that, a sword will pierce through her own soul, uh, soul as well. In other words, what is he saying there? He's saying, look, Mary, one day, it's this kind of the first hint of the cross in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, those of you who are mothers, can you, can you even begin to, to identify with this? this? This woman, this mom, would look on the pierced body of her son who would be killed for the sins of many. He's a sign that is opposed. He will give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the irony. While Jesus came to unite us to God, to reconcile us to God, not all receive his reconciliation. And, and he necessarily brings division, okay? So on the one hand, you have these statements. I've come that you might have peace, John 16, 33. And on the other hand, you have Matthew 10, 34 that says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. So his person necessarily divides the human race into one of two camps, those who know God through Christ and those who reject God because they reject Christ. This is the, the difference between Judaism and Christianity, right? 
He is, he is a sign that is opposed, rejected, not embraced. I mean, the Jews are waiting, waiting, waiting. Christians are saying, we don't have to wait anymore, man. He's here. The Messiah has come. The Savior is here. And we just simply embrace him and follow him. I met a, a young lady just about a year ago at, at the Equal Exchange Coffee House at, by North Station. And, uh, and she uh, was, was basically a, a cultural Jew, is how she described herself. And uh, we got into just a short theological conversation. And so I just asked her, I said, well, what about, what about the Messiah? What do, you, what do you think? Is he on his way? Is he, you know, are, you, are you looking for him? Are you hoping in him? What would you be looking for if you were? And she, here was her statement. She said, you know, she said, I've kind of lost hope in that. Because if, if God is sending his Messiah, he's not very punctual. And it's funny how we want to sit in the seat of God, right? We want to call the shots. We think that we should have kind of a pulse on what he should and shouldn't do. And so for, for this young lady and for many, perhaps for some of you here this morning, Jesus has not been a, a, a sign that you've received. He has not been for your rising, but perhaps you have opposed him. And if that is the case for you, I want to say very humbly and lovingly and even courageously that if that is the case, then you need to be prepared for a fall and it will be a destructive and crashing fall. There is nothing worse than separation from God. And this is not just for like a few days here. This is for all eternity. We either have life in Christ, abundant life now, eternal life.